Hey everybody, this is the second half of Indefensible Inc.'s look at the 1995 storyline Spider-Man Maximum Clonage. We recommend you start with our last episode for more information about the storyline and what's been happening so far, but for those of you returning, here's a quick recap to jog your memory. This story is confusing enough that you might need it. The man we've come to know as Peter Parker in every Spider-Man comic since 1975 has been revealed to be a clone of the original Peter. His world pulled out from under him, a despondent Peter has abandoned his pregnant wife Mary Jane to join up with the evil Jackal, who plans to kill every human life on Earth and replace them with his supposedly genetically superior clones. The real Peter Parker, a man who's gone by the name Ben Riley for five years, tries to convince clone Peter, our Peter, not to throw his life away. He confronts Peter at the Jackal's lab, but unfortunately is unable to turn him back to the light. Instead, after a battle involving Ben, Peter, the Jackal, the evil shape-shifting clone Spider-Side, and the mysterious masked man Kane, who is yet another Peter Parker clone, Ben has been captured and thrown into a cell, where he's forced to confront a whole horde of costume Spider-Man clones out for his blood. And we'll pick it up from there after the music. So part four is in Spider-Man. That's Spider-Man with no adjective before it, number 61. Credited story and art by Howard Mackey and Tom Lyle. Uh, on a personal note, when I was a young comics reader in 1995, um, I actually had sort of drifted away from reading Spider-Man comics because they were getting sort of dark. And this was the first issue that I had picked up in maybe like a year or maybe a year and a half. So imagine being like a kid and walking in at this chapter in the middle of all of this. Not just finding out that, like, oh, the guy in all of your Spider-Man comics was a fake, and this new red spider guy was the real Peter Parker, and Peter Parker is teaming up with a bad guy. But also, like, there was, like, a, the new, like, sort of spiky Spider-Man logo and the new corner box, and maybe it was, like, the first or an early time that I'd seen computer lettering or computer coloring, so that was mm-hmm. kind of a big deal. So that's sort of why my personal connection to, to this story. So we start out with some nice big panels of the Scarlet Spider, fighting wave after wave of clones. Um, a little bit of recap as to like who Ben Riley is, which sort of helped me out. He's recapping current events and then decides that he's got to go talk some sense into Peter um, and that his best bet is to try to escape from the clones right now. And Ben Riley says, I can't believe he's gone over to the Jackal's side, which, believe me, Ben, we're all with you on, <laughs> on that one. Yeah, he does pretty much everything but saying, like, boy, it's kind of implausible if you think about it that... <laughs> Peter's up for this, but uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, then we cut to Mary Jane, who is returning to her and Peter's apartment. There's more recapping of plot. Um, again, when you've been reading, you know, four parts of this so far, it's been a little repetitive. But for me, when I was a kid in 1995, that was really helpful. Um, Mary Jane opens the door, and Kane has apparently broken into her apartment and is sitting there. Um, he's not hostile. He's been sitting in the dark. Apparently, looking through photo albums, very uh, morose, possibly drinking red wine and listening to Joni Mitchell albums. Um, He tells Mary Jane that Peter had everything and asks how he could possibly throw all of his life that he's built and his potential away. Uh, Mary Jane says that she doesn't know and that she wishes she did. Back at the lab, the Jackal is telling Peter that um, he can see this as a difficult adjustment for him, uh, but that, you know, they're family and in time, Peter will forget his old life. 
Uh, considering that his old life involved being married to a supermodel and about to have his first kid on the way, and that his new life involves hanging around the lab with a guy called Spiderside, I'm, <laughs> I'm having a hard time trying to see this as anything but a step down. But again, the Jack has got some his uh, like plus six charisma. Uh, the Jackal tells Peter that he's got something, he needs something to do to get his mind off of things, like attempted genocide, and tells him to go pick up Gwen Stacy. So this is um, another wrinkle in the story that I didn't want to front load, but the Gwen that we're going to meet in this part is the original Gwen Stacy clone that the Jackal created in the 1975 storyline, who sort of like vanished mysteriously at the end of that story. Something that hasn't come up a whole lot so far, but is going to be relevant soon, is that all of the Jackal's clones, except for that Gwen clone and this Peter clone, eventually degenerate, and that only these two are perfectly stable clones. And so that's why he sort of needs both of them to sort of figure out why they're different and like how he can stabilize the process. Um, it does expose a hole-in-your-hole-kill-the-world-and-replace-them-with-clones plan that you haven't perfected your cloning process since 1975, um, he keeps talking about them being genetically perfect, but they end up melting after a couple of hours. I can make a billion clones, but only two of them have ever really worked out. But I, I'm pretty sure if I wipe out the human race first, that will motivate me to <laughs> to uh, finish my research here. Yeah, he's, he's really in the beta testing <laughs> phase of things. Yeah. So Peter takes off, and the jackal laughs at him and says, What a sap! Can you believe what some people will fall for? Spider-Size says, no, I can't, in a very pointed way that's setting up the heel turn you know is coming. Uh, Scarlet Spider is trying to evade the clones throughout the complex. Um, we're told that their spider senses sort of cancel each other out, and the, so the clones are spreading out and doing sort of a more methodical search, maybe allowing Ben to pick them off one by one. Uh, then Scarlet Spider ambushes them with an attack. So actually one of the cool ideas that they had with Ben Riley to sort of distinguish him from um, our Peter Parker is that on his years on the road, he had sort of made some upgrades to his equipment. He has what he calls stingers, which are like little knockout darts that he could shoot from his web shooter. And he has impact webbing, which sort of looks like it expands on contact and envelops whatever it touches. Um, unfortunately, Ben designed the impact webbing so that he himself could always tear through it. And since his clones are exactly as strong as him, they make short work of it. Um, they smash him through a wall, and the fight continues outside, and Ben, go ben goes, here? Jackal's lab is here? Back at Peter and MJ's pad, Kane reveals his origin and why he cares so much about Peter but hates Ben. So Kane was the first, the very first Peter Parker clone, and he was trained by Professor Warren to sort of take over Peter Parker's life as Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Unfortunately, his clone degenerations began, and he had a facial defect that sort of evolved over time, but even though it was slight at first, it was enough to distinguish him from Peter and make him sort of useless as a imposter. Warren was going to destroy him as a failed experiment, but his um, precognitive spider sense kicked in, and he escaped before that could happen. Um, but he sticks around, and from the shadows he watches Peter, um, our Peter, being supposedly, which ends up not being the case, but as far as we're considered, our, as far as we're concerned here, our Peter being born in a cloning tank and came to see him as sort of a brother who could have the life that he never had. So it's so hard for him to see him throwing it away like this. So the this is what I alluded to earlier as the rationale. The idea is that Cain could never have been Ben, but he could have been Peter, and so he sort of looks out for 
Peter and torments Ben. Does that really does that track for you at all, or does that just sort of seem like I I get the Peter angle, but just I think like the I I guess the hatred for Ben comes from him because he's gonna mess up Peter's life. Is that the yeah yeah I guess because like, yeah if he shows back up in town then. But he hadn't, like, done anything to Peter yet, so, like... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that I can't defend this too too well. Um, I think it's sort okay. of a matter of, like, they... I don't even know if Kane, if they knew that Kane was going to be a, a, another Peter Parker clone when he first showed up, or if he was just, like, another mystery dude. Mm-hmm. So, God only knows, but as far as this story is concerned, this is why we're supposed to believe that any of this is happening. I'll allow it. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna have to. <laughs> uh, anyway, Kane says that um, Mary Jane was only important to him insofar as he is Peter's wife, but now that Peter has abandoned her, she means nothing to him, and makes kind of a threatening overture at her. Um, back at the lab, the Jackal has generated a bunch, whole bunch of new Gwen Stacy clones. Um, he goes, you know, like, aren't we looking lovely tonight, ladies? And then all the clones um, melt pretty much right away into sort of a green goo. Um, this is the clone degeneration that I just mentioned. Anyway, it's implied that the Jackal does this somewhat regularly. Again, that he's insane and creepy. Elsewhere, Spider-Man swings by the Gwen Stacy clone's apartment. Gwen is like, you know, do you know what it's like to have your life taken away from you? Peter's like, yep, I, <laughs> I think I got this figured out now. Uh, Gwen says they're not really in control of their lives and they might as well face the jackal. Back to Kane and MJ. She's giving him a talking to, says that she doesn't believe that he will hurt her because deep down he is Peter Parker, or a Peter Parker, and her Peter is the same. She says, my Peter has always defined himself by his actions, not by whether he was born or cloned. Um, Granted, his current actions are aiding a maniac who's planning to wipe out humanity, so maybe this is not... Entirely convincing as an argument. Kane takes the point that he has the power and needs to accept the responsibility. Yeah. And uh, he thanks her and then dramatically exits by jumping out her window, shattering the glass. <laughs> so I think nothing expresses gratitude for having somebody totally fix your worldview by just like destroying somebody's window in, in, mm-hmm. in a New York City apartment. I mean, it's probably cold. She's going to have to put up like a screen or something. Yeah. Uh, what's the What's the building super gonna think? Like, not just like you broke some glass, but like the the window frame is like torn out. This is gonna be yeah. a big repair. So, mm-hmm. Kane is Kane, you know what? Kane is a little degenerated. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe not thinking about what it's, the realities of renting in New York City. Yeah, he's he needs to learn to accept the responsibility of of paying for property <laughs> damage. Anyway, Mary Jane decides that. Um, you know, Kane's apparently going to go out and do something, but she also has to uh, go out herself and, you know, try to reach Peter. Back at the lab, uh, Scarlet Spider seems surprised to discover that the Jackal's lab is in the smokestack, the factory where his body was supposedly dumped during the original clone storyline. Um, I think this is like a communication breakdown between the writers because last issue in Amazing Spider-Man... Scarlet Spider just sort of shows up to the lab and is like, oh, I, you know, I followed a lead, so I thought you would be here. So presumably he knows where he is, right? Yeah, that was my assumption as well. Yeah. So, again, that's sort of why maybe it's not a great idea to do this kind of round-robin uh, writing. 
Uh, more and more spider clones are swarming over Ben, but he is determined not to let the jackal steal any more of his life. Um, but suddenly the clones' attentions are divided and else are, are divided elsewhere because Kane has shown up and he is ready to throw down. So it looks like he's going to pretty much smash two Spider-Men into each other. But Ben stops him. He says he's not going to let Kane kill anyone, even his clones. Kane says that he won't because he's learned that they have a, a right to life too. And they resolve to tackle the Jackal together. So part five takes place in Spectacular Spider-Man number 227. Kane continues to fight the clones with Ben Riley. Ben tells him not to kill the clones, arguing they have, as Justin just noted, they have a right to live as he and Kane do. One thing I did want to point out is that this issue has pencil breakdowns by the then regular Spectacular Spider-Man artist Sal Buscema, but also has finished art by Bill Sienkiewicz of New Mutants and Electra Assassin and other uh, other titles. Um, but if that has you excited, don't be because <laughs> it really looks like he was the only warm body that happened to be <laughs> around at the time and could throw some ink on a page because it just looks like pretty much garbage in, in my opinion. Yeah, this is this is like two like great artists who team up and apparently are probably on some kind of a tight turnaround. Um, all the like expressive stuff that you like from Bill Sienkiewicz's work doesn't show up. It's just pretty much mm-hmm. scribbly and um, especially like considered uh, compared to like the previous chapters, which were done in sort of a clean style, you know, mm-hmm. Mark Bagley's drawn one, Tom Lyle's drawn one in sort of a, you know, clean imagey style. And then this is just like very scratchy. Yeah, yeah, there's, and it's just like overuse of ink. There's, there's ink everywhere. Yeah, so again, like, this is nothing against uh, Busima or Sienkiewicz. Just, no. this was not there. This was not what they were supposed to be doing was part five of Maximum Clonage. So meanwhile at home, Mary Jane gathers up a bunch of Peter's little spider tracers. She has the idea if she sets them off all at once, it's going to send this powerful signal to Peter through his spider sense that she can use to attract his attention to try to get him to come home to her and their future baby. And this works, only the signal is so distracting that Spidey, who is in mid-swing with Gwen Stacy, almost falls to the the ground with Gwen in tow, uh, but he manages to save both of them. Elsewhere, the jackal is trying to now figure out how the Mohawk guy survived, uh, in case you'd forgotten about that breakout character from a few issues ago. So his his kind of rationale behind this is he wants to figure out if he does, if the Jackal does release this plague more broadly, how can he rule out the possibility of more survivors like Mohawk guy? Yeah, so again, his master plan is to build clones that, for the most part, turn into goo, shortly after they're made and wipe out humanity with a plague that may or may not, not <laughs> may or may not kill you and may in fact give you superpowers instead. Mm-hmm. Again, this is, this is our villain. Yeah. So he's, he's kind of, it feels like he's just making things up on the fly. 
The writers probably uh, are. Yeah. So meanwhile, the 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 clones that Ben and Kane are fighting are starting to break down at a molecular level, turning into these horrific piles of melting goop. This is apparently because they were rushed into production too soon by the jackal. Yeah, it's like when you make uh, take the ice cubes out of the freezer too soon and they're like a little bit of skin of ice around like just some really cold water. So you don't have to feel too mm-hmm. bad about these clones getting wiped out because they're just barely sentient protoplasm apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the clones are actually like the degenerating clones are maybe one of the few visuals that I like in these in these issues because they are kind of creepy looking. Yeah, there's a there's a panel of a of Kane like just punching one so hard that like the mask sort of melts into into a goo and like that that is effective for the art style. But yeah, yeah. So at this point, Ben tries to get the clones to stop fighting them, but it doesn't work. Yeah. So I was talking earlier about how like different writers approach the same characters in slightly different ways. So the Ben Riley that Tom DeFalco was writing in this issue is desperately trying to reason with his clones, telling them. You know, you don't have to do what the Jackal tells you. You can lead valuable lives. Look at what Peter's done with his life. Let me help you, you know, take control of things. Um, The Ben Riley that Howard Mackey was writing in part four was mostly making a lot of snarky quips about the clones and how they inherited his brains, which isn't fair because he did all the studying. So uh, a lot more, there was a lot more cavalier Ben Riley in last issue than we're we're getting here. And I I think the Mm. idea that Ben is trying to make good for his clones is... Um, the maybe little slightly better or more satisfying uh, characterization. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, Peter goes to see Mary Jane with the Gwen clone in tow. And Mary Jane and uh, fake Gwen share a nice reunion moment since they used to be good friends. Uh, Having beaten the clone army, Ben and Kane go after the Jackal next. At the headquarters of the New Warriors, the team is notified about how Mohawk Guy is the sole survivor of the Pennsylvania attack, so they make it their top priority to get him back. Uh, do they make another appearance, or is this the, the last New Warriors reference here? I, can't. Um, I, I think this is supposed to get you excited to check out next month's New Warriors, where Mohawk Guy probably joins the team or something. Oh, okay. So, you know, it certainly worked for me. Right. I'm, I'm sure you're looking that up in the back issues now. Elsewhere in the Jackal's compound, Spider-Side is hacking into the Jackal's file on the virus and sending it to his mysterious new boss, Scryer. The Jackal tries to stop him, but Spider-Side is much more powerful and starts beating up on him. And by the transitive property, uh, Spider-Side is, more, is stronger than the Jackal. The Jackal can beat up Kane. Kane is stronger than Ben or Peter, so just keep it straight there. Yeah, and it's one of the another one of those things that seems to change from panel to panel or issue to issue. Yeah, who's tougher? Also of note, Spider Side says Scryer asked me to modem a copy of this data, so trying to make modem a, a verb uh, <laughs> didn't quite catch on. No, but um, I do like to imagine that this mysterious robed um, ancient force like is sitting with the dial-up connection <laughs> waiting to get an email from spider side <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's checking his his AOL <laughs> account the the jackal also says about spider side 
I can't believe he thought I was serious when I started calling him Spiderside. That's almost as lame as the Scarlet Spider. So there seems like there's either some lampshading going on there, or maybe a dig at another writer or editor, perhaps, who came up with those character names. Yeah, so Tom DeFalco wanted to call Spiderside Freakface, <laughs> which is maybe not much better. But, you know, Spider-Side, we can, we can debate whether or not this is a good villain name. Probably isn't. Uh, Scarlet Spider, actually, sort of the idea was that, I think the original intent was that, like, the media was going to call him the Scarlet Spider and that Ben would hate this name because it's sort of, it's awkward to say, but I, I don't think that ever actually came off in the issues. But, yeah, Tom DeFalco, letting you know, he is not happy with, with any of these characters' names. A character who we, we can all agree on has a badass named Kane. Yes. Nyx interferes with this beating, though, saving the jackal. And again, Kane's motivations are kind of questionable. It even is acknowledged in the captions where he speculates that maybe what he wanted all along was acceptance from the jackal. Kane then has that vision of MJ lying dead for maybe the 14th time in this uh, this six-issue storyline alone. Like, we just keep getting it. And this distracts him long enough for Spider-Side to sneak up around him and stab him with some random machinery that's lying around. And if you think the sheer amount of space that this sort of vision plot point means that it's going to be wrapped up in our exciting conclusion next issue... Uh, nope. Yeah, I, I was legitimately angry that <laughs> I would have to go online and look it up because it's not explained in these issues. But yep. Ben gets really mad at Spider-Side for killing Kane and then attacks him. Um, so Ben is definitely in into preserving any kind of life like the, the Peter of old, uh, like we'd ex- hope for from our Spider-Man. He punches Spider-Side into the electrical system of the building, shorting out every electrical electrical system in the rest of the complex. Some machinery then falls on Ben's ankle. He gets injured. He's got a bad ankle, so he can't pursue the Jackal, who says he's being forced to move up his timetable to destroy the human race. And the Jackal escapes while Ben is engulfed by the melted goo from the Spider-Man clones he was just fighting. And that is part five. So before we begin with part six, um, this is Maximum Clonage Omega. Uh, You should just know that this issue is an absolute mess. It's got a bunch of different artists who don't really, their styles don't really gel with each other necessarily. It looks rushed. Um, at least on one page of my copy, I don't know if that's fixed in, in yours, but the letters are really pixelated for some reason and hard to read. Mm-hmm. This was clearly a rush job, um, and it's really hard to imagine paying five dollars for this at a time when most comics were one fifty and being like satisfied with like this is the conclusion to this big expensive storyline. Yeah, and and I was reading the digital version, so the like shiny chromium cover is scanned in and. If you can imagine like how how bad a, a a chromium reflecting cover looks in real life, it looks ten times worse <laughs> when it's scanned in for a digital version. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got the actual like Omega like 
physical issue and like it is it's muddy and also just on a weird side note there are a number of panels and i think even the cover a little bit has some very todd mcfarlane-esque character faces and and art yeah one of the artists is uh named robert brown who looks like maybe he does mm-hmm. most of the most of the art on here and it yeah it yeah he, I, i'm not familiar with anything else that he's ever done but it does look like a sort of todd mcfarlane thing oh okay i had this alternate explanation where he was just like stopping by the <laughs> offices for some reason like or he was in the area and they were like we'll give you hundred thousand dollars to just <laughs> do a few panels for desperate yeah and uh we won't even use your name but... <laughs> yeah robert brown that's nicely uh inconspicuous mm-hmm. um, sorry robert brown if you're out there and uh, so Tom Lyle, who was writing this, had sort of a McFarland kind of deal where he was an artist expanding into writing. Um, he got picked to do this issue because this was originally supposed to be like a Spider-Man Unlimited issue, and then they decided to expand it into the Chromium covers. But what this also means is that they gave one of their least experienced writers the job of wrapping up this really complex and wide-ranging plotline, um, and it goes about as well and as confusingly as you would expect. We then cut to, or we start off with the the jackal taunting Ben by telling him he's going to kill off all his old friends at the Daily Bugle. And so, like, this is, like, super out of nowhere. It's like they saw that the jackal's sort of global threat scheme was a little far-fetched and abstract, and they needed to add characters that, like, maybe you already care about to add some stakes. The melted Spider-Man clones from before are now a mound of writhing arms that are trying to pull Ben down. And he says, I can't kill them. I just can't, even if that does sound like a good idea. So this is one of those cases where, you know, obviously we we value the sanctity of life and we like our Spider-Man not killing people. But I don't know if drawing the line at a mound of like writhing <laughs> tissue is 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 a place where i i am on the same side as, as spider-man that's a lot of liberal garbage on your part <laughs> <laughs> okay um but yeah he's he's very very adamant about this yes the melted so meanwhile Mary Jane tries to convince Peter to return to her and their unborn child. Uh, but he says, I don't deserve you or the baby. At, at this point, six chapters in, I think I finally agree with Peter Parker that he probably doesn't deserve Mary Jane or the baby at this point. But Mary Jane's still into him. So so after after that, he decides he's going to go after the jackal. The Gwen clone asks to go with him. And he decides that she deserves the change to return to their creator. And this was a moment where, again, I questioned his decision-making because he's bringing a civilian with no superpowers to a building with multiple supervillains lurking in it. Yeah, it's just one of those those poor decisions in hindsight. Mm -hmm. But we'll see how well it goes. The Jackal, meanwhile, is soliloquizing about his plan, which involves sending small, basically mini-me versions of himself to various TV studios and newsrooms, having them set up cloning pods, 
collecting genetic material somehow, and then unleashing the virus so that it murders every newscaster, reporter, and weather forecaster in the tri-state area, and then having the clones go on air and give false news reports so people aren't prepared when the virus sweeps over the rest of the public. On the surface, I mean, it sounds really dumb, but in thinking about it, I was I was realizing that this is about 100 times more plausible than most of the COVID-19 conspiracy theories <laughs> that are out there. So, you know, not the worst. Right. Maybe you could have made this work by playing it off as like, obviously this guy is insane and his plan makes no sense. And that could have been portrayed as scary, like when the Joker like makes all the fish have Joker faces and then tries to copyright fish, which mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. But that's like, oh, it's freaky that he thinks this is a good idea. But um, but yeah, he's. Just, I, I feel like we're supposed to be taking this seriously. Like the Jackal is meant to be insane, but not irrational. Right. We're supposed to think, we're supposed to think this plot is like really possibly going down. Hmm. But in any case, whether we think he's going to pull it off or not he's kicking off the plan with a good old-fashioned virus bomb at the daily bugle why not the mysterious cloaked guy scryer reappears telling the jackal that the destruction of the human race cannot be allowed and spider side who's now on team scryer attacks the jackal at that moment peter and gwen or clone gwen break in they get attacked by the Jackal's security system, but then Peter hacks into the Jackal's computers and learns of his plan to start at the Daily Bugle. Then Ben tries to go and evacuate J. Jonah Jameson from the Bugle, who is his usual suspicious and cantankerous self, doesn't want to, to go along with it. At that moment, Spiderside and the Jackal smash through into the room with Jameson and then Spider side goes after both Ben and the Jackal. Ben's web bandage dissolves at this point. Uh, he webbed up his ankle and usually it has like an hour. Uh, it sticks around for about an hour. He says, has this, has this fight been going on that long? Which again, I think reflects the, the reader's experience <laughs> of things. Meanwhile, Mary Jane hears on the news that Ben is at the bugle in this battle and apparently he's out of webbing. So she thinks Ben can help her get Peter back, and she grabs a whole bunch of extra web cartridges and heads to the bugle. Uh, Jekyll's plan to silence the media isn't going very well, clearly. I think that if, you're, if, you're first, if your first place of attack is the media, maybe you shouldn't be surprised <laughs> that the media picks up on the story. Mm-hmm. He's not off to a great start, but we, we get more fighting between... Spider-Side, Ben, and the Jackal. Ben tells the Jackal that he's wrong to blame Ben for the original Gwen Stacy's death, which was the Jackal's motivation uh, for at least part of his revenge schemes, and that he should blame the Green Goblin instead. Uh, But that doesn't really persuade the Jackal otherwise. Spider-Side keeps trying to kill Jackal. They both fall out of the building, and Ben... Riley manages to web the jackal and keep him from falling, but alas, our poor friend Spider-Side falls to his apparent death. So I, I do think that, that he actually is 
even though everybody else who dies here will show up later. I think this is Spider-Side's last appearance, or at least last appearance for, you know, several years. So I think with all the disagreement that people had about the story, pretty much everybody got together and was like, yeah, we don't like Spider-Side. This is the one thing. Like, some people thought Kane was cool. Nobody mm-hmm. thought Spider-Side was cool. We'll just wait another 20 years when... It's revealed that Spider-Man in the last 20 years has actually been Spider-Side using his <laughs> shape-shifting abilities. Um, that's that's going to be a doozy. At this point, the Jackal pulls out a gun and tries to shoot Ben. Pretty straightforward. At the moment, Peter and Gwen show up to stop him, and they prevent the Jackal from shooting Ben. Peter plans on fighting the Jackal while Ben goes up to the roof to try to disarm the virus bomb. And Peter and Ben end up, uh, so I think that's the plan. I forget the exact breakdown of, of uh, <laughs> duties, but they then end up both webbing the jackal against the brick wall and both focus their efforts on disarming, disarming the bomb. So they manage to remove the virus component, seemingly shutting it all down. Gwen Stacy then appears, sporting the gun that Jackal was just holding, and she's intent on getting revenge on the Jackal by killing him. Ben and Peter both try to talk her out of it. Peter seems to finally realize that even though he's a clone, he's still a human and still has value and kind of alludes to this in his speech to the clone Gwen. Um, so it's kind of a closest thing we can we can spot to maybe the conclusion of a character arc. Yeah, but I mean, the character arc is everybody has been telling Peter since the beginning of the story, just because you're a clone doesn't mean that you're not a person or that, you know, your wife doesn't love you or that you can't be a member of society. So basically his emotional arc is just actually listening to what everybody has been telling him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, not, not the quickest on the uptake in these, in these issues, but he gets there. Uh, the Jackal then uses this opportunity to break free and knock Gwen off the building. She manages to catch on to some debris, though, and is hanging on for her life. Ben goes to Weber, but oh no, he's out of webbing. But at that moment, MJ appears, tossing him the web cartridges. He is able to uh, web her up. The Jackal also tries to save her, but plunges to his death in doing so. And as he falls, he yells, I did it for you, Gwen. All for you. But when the dream ends, the nightmare begins. This is some mysterious gibberish that ends up paying off later in the, in the a future storyline. But oh, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty cool thing to say as you're going, as you're falling to your death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's definitely... Um... He's writing those down in his his journal beforehand and and kind of seeing how they sound before he tries them out. Gwen is safe, but the bomb is reactivated somehow. And so even though it's got no virus, it's still going to explode and cause destruction. So Ben basically does the standard, oh, you've got a family, I'm going to just go off and chuck this into the harbor and... So he does that, not really a lot of suspense. At the end, Peter decides that he's going to go back to marry Jane, and they reconcile. 
Clone Gwen just kind of slips away in the aftermath. And Ben goes back to his very depressing motel. Peter, at that point, goes to visit Ben and says that the mantle of Spider-Man actually belongs to Ben, but Ben is not sure. So we end on a cliffhanger. Who will be Spider-Man? Yep. The entire point, presumably, of the storyline that we're going to pick a Spider-Man is pretty much just psych at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so reflections on, <laughs> on this this story as a whole. Ooh. What so I I guess so I I had read this before. Had what how did you even approach this? <laughs> so I had this had been about the time when I had gotten off specifically Spider-Man comics and maybe I think comics in general um cuz it was not socially acceptable to be a known comics reader, and I had no strength of my convictions at that time. <laughs> um, and I just remember hearing all the the coverage from like Wizard magazine, in particular at the time, talking about how terrible the the Clone Saga was and the the return of Peter's parents and that thing and that kind of thing. So I went into this knowing it was going to be bad. And it turned out to be just as bad as, <laughs> as the hype led me to believe. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to even think of like wanting to do a hot take. Like actually there's some good stuff in here because mm-hmm. there's, there's just really not. <laughs> I, and so there were some things like, like the basic premise of the clone Peter and real Peter switching. Mm-hmm. I actually was kind of I was intrigued by that idea and like we mentioned like the Scarlet Spider costume was kind of cool and so I thought it was a it was a gutsy move mm-hmm. just in, in in kind of theory um, but the way that it's executed just for a lot of reasons doesn't doesn't work yeah it is one thing that's sort of funny is that like so much of the impetus behind the idea of like bringing back the clone and maybe switching out Peter Parker is that Spider-Man writers like just did not like writing a married Peter Parker because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like ever since Peter Parker got married, everybody was complaining that like, oh, Spider-Man should be like young and, you know, out there, you know, dating and stuff and having girl trouble. Yeah. But like nobody could really bring themselves to like either kill off Mary Jane or you know, you have them get a divorce and then it's like Spider-Man is a young divorcee. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's so like the idea was that like at some point Ben would be Peter Parker, Spider-Man and he would be single and he would be, you know, back to whatever the writers thought was the acceptable version of Spider-Man. But this is clearly not the way to <laughs> clearly not the way to do it. Yeah. And I mean, I, we've seen storylines like Craven's Last Hunt where Spider-Man gets pushed to his limits and is pretty much almost having a break with reality. And, you know, it can be done. You can, I think we talked about this way back in the first issue that you you can go dark with Spider-Man occasionally. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you know, a lot of his early issues, even though he's making quips all the time, he goes, he's not in a good place emotionally. But I think the stuff we talked about in terms of how him joining up with the jackal and wanting to deciding to abandon Mary Jane just don't really scan. And it's just so complex because, like, if this is all the long game is to like get back to a simpler, more streamlined Spider-Man, mm-hmm. like Spider-Man is supposed to be like your relatable superhero, and this is just about how like everybody has been cloning him for years and years, and he has all these genetic duplicates outside, and there's a end of the world kind of genetic plot, and this is mm-hmm. and there's Scryer, who whoever the hell that that's supposed to be, but like there's some kind of cosmic intervention here, so like we're just getting further and further away from like what do you want a Spider-Man story to be? Yeah, and even I, I think if we're just looking at it at the level of what actually happens in the storyline, the the battles and everything, it's like usually a good Spider-Man story is he fights a villain, he gets beaten, and then he comes up with some kind of like clever way to beat them or figures out the, the villain's weakness. And there's like none of that in these stories either. It's just constant punching and people switching sides and yeah it's just a a big mess (laughs) yeah i think i think that's it's not even that some of the ideas are that terrible it's just nothing is executed well so i can't it's hard to even like judge it on any kind of level because it's it's like it's like they gave you a movie and like it's out of the scenes are out of order (laughs) yeah and it's written by like 10 different screenwriters (laughs) And like they were they were working separately and like stapling the script together from the different from the different writers. Yeah. Um, how do you think it compares to some of the other big '90s comic events where you had major characters getting killed off and replaced, like Death of Superman or Batman Nightfall? I think with Death of Superman and Nightfall and stuff, I think the big difference is that like they were always on the same page about what they were going to do. So mm-hmm. they all, even though the Spider-Man team was like meeting and having, you know, memos and everything was coordinated, the Superman guys were like, okay, we're going to do, I've, I've seen actually, they've shown like the whiteboard that they were mapping this out on. It's like, okay, these issues, Superman dies here. We have three months of funeral. We break for a couple of months. Hmm. He comes back in 500. We have the four Superman in a couple months time. We bring back the original Superman. And like that's, they had this and follow this blueprint pretty closely. Yeah. This like, as that Life of Riley blog point, like it's really fascinating to see, like they just, the marketing team just kept saying like, no, just, just, you know, stretch it out, string it out. None of the, some of the writers had totally different views on like whether Peter or Ben should be Spider-Man. So they were all working at cross purposes, making it up as they went along pretty much. Yeah. I think, you know, and like you can, you know, write comics like on the fly, like, you know, John Byrne and, Chris Claremont were doing Uncanny X-Men sort of on the seat of their pants, but that was like one mm-hmm. team on one book and not, you know, five, a, an entire line full of comics because this also crosses over into like one shots and mini series and Spider-Man right. has to be on lunchboxes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah, I, it's, it's everything. It, it makes death of Superman and nightfall look like legitimately artistic accomplishments with, Mm-hmm. with thematic resonance whereas this is just sort of a wandering mess yeah I, one other thing that I do remember from the time of those other 
crossovers or those other events where there were those criticisms, I think, by some longtime fans about how you had the main character get taken down by a new villain. And so I I give this storyline a little bit of credit for, for like going back to the well of Spider-Man history and being like, hey, we're going to take this 70s villain who wasn't really considered anything more than a C-level character and try to make him an actual threat. Um, but again, he's not really... <laughs> There's nothing really that interesting about him. Yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing would be that he is obsessed with this college student that was in his class, and that's almost totally ignored in favor of his... Uh, whatever whatever genetic thing he's planning on, he thinks he's accomplishing. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a way to actually make this story work with, with maybe what their original goal was or with some small tweaks? It's kind of funny. They actually, like a couple of years ago, uh, Tom DeFalco and Tom Lyle, or not Tom Lyle, uh, Howard Mackey, they got together and they did like, what if we did like a six issue mini, like mini series of like, sort of what we were planning on from the beginning. And like hmm. Ben shows up as Scarlet Spider. He thinks he's the real Spider-Man. He takes over as Spider-Man. Then Peter Parker comes back. Um, but I don't know, like, it, cause that, that's just, that's just sort of, boring like death of superman is, is kind of interesting because you have like the intrigue with the four characters like this this story does have like intrigue to it and the if you take if you take all this stuff out of it it's just sort of like switching up who's wearing a mask for a couple of months mm-hmm. it is a thing that like the problem with it is that it's long and rambling but the long and rambling part is the only interesting thing about it like if you were there at the time I was, I mean, like this, this got me interested in Spider-Man. I was like interested to see, I assumed this was going somewhere. And yeah. So I was like, oh wow. Okay. Like, and then at one point, like there's like a, another, another Spider-Man skeleton that shows up in the smokestack and it's like, well, was that the real Peter Parker? Are they all clones? Like looking back on it, when you know that it's all just turned over, it's like, this is pointless to even, <laughs> pointless to even read, which is our specialty here. Yeah. Yeah, but like at the time, I was like, "Oh yeah, like I'm I'm really curious to see what this other skeleton is going to be and what the who this new mystery guy is." Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's like a good way to make this like a good story. What do you what What do you think? Yeah, I think the the kind of the version that you alluded to, where you just have Ben come back, and then if their goal is to make a younger, like not married Peter Parker. They could they could have just gone the legacy route, which Marvel wasn't really doing back then, and just have, you know, this the guy who thought he was a real Peter uh, take over, mm-hmm. and then send Peter Parker off to live a happy life with his wife and child, um, and you know that would have been one way to to go about it, but they went this way. <laughs> So you're probably wondering out there, how did they wrap this up? Because they didn't, obviously this storyline does not really resolve anything. Um, well, they didn't for a while still. Marketing and sales kept making them stretch out the transition from Peter to Ben. At one point, they canceled all four Spider-Man titles and replaced them with Scarlet Spider number one and Scarlet Spider number two for a couple of months. 
because that had worked really well for Age of Apocalypse. But again, Age of Apocalypse, like uh, Death of Superman and Nightfall was something that they all got together and planned and were on the same page about and not just something that they were being told to do by marketing. Um, eventually, Peter loses his powers and he and Mary Jane move to Portland for, like, actually, you said, like a happy ending with their future child. Ben dyes his hair blonde and keeps the name Ben Riley. He gets a job at a coffee shop and he becomes Spider-Man in sort of an updated 90s costume having new adventures. Um, however, at pretty much the exact moment that they pulled the trigger on this transition that they've been working to, to for like a year and a half, the Spider-Man group editor changes his mind and the new mandate is Peter Parker's the real guy, bring him back. So right as they're setting up the new status quo for Ben Riley, they have to do a 180 and reintroduce Peter and Mary Jane, give Peter back his powers, introduce more mystery men doing mysterious things in the shadows. Eventually, they just sort of throw up their hands and say the entire clone saga was a ridiculously elaborate scheme by Norman Osborn, the original Green Goblin who was supposed to be dead to destroy Peter Parker's life. Um, the Green Goblin, as you'll recall, is a supervillain whose previous great master plan was, I guess I'll just kidnap Spider-Man's girlfriend and knock her off a bridge. And like, all of a sudden, now he's supposed to be like this brilliant, subtle mastermind working from the shadows with access to cloning technology, and he's behind mm-hmm. the scryers, sort of, it turns out. So, Norman's alive, Peter's real, Ben is the clone, Ben dies, Peter and MJ lose the baby, you think maybe the baby is alive, but it's not, and Peter is Spider-Man again. But of course, it's comics, so 20 years later, pretty much everything has been reversed again and retconned, and Ken and Ben, or Kane and Ben and Harry Osborn are all alive again, unless they got killed off when I wasn't looking. So, I think in the words of... Just to paraphrase Jack Donaghy, this is all just one giant ass ache. Yeah. <laughs> That's my final word on the Clone Saga. Well, fortunately, a few years later, they came up with a perfectly elegant way to break up the Mary Jane and, <laughs> and Peter Parker relationship that was universally beloved and and uh, didn't cause any controversy. So. That's right. It was a much, a much more elegant solution that everybody loved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, it is sort of surprising that they managed to do something that people were angrier about than, <laughs> than the Clone Saga. It was, you, have that, to, you sort of have to do that on purpose, <laughs> you know? I think that is a storyline for another episode. <laughs> yes. So now we enter into the arena to test each other with obscure and bizarre comic book trivia in Cannon Fodder. Um, I think maybe I'll go first. Both of my questions cover the uh, post-Clone Saga Spider-Man comics, which I was reading avidly at the time. Um, So question number one, not too long after returning to the role of Spider-Man, Peter Parker was framed for a crime he didn't commit. A low-level mob hood named Joey Z was discovered hanging dead from a spider line, his lungs filled with Spider-Man's web fluid. Who framed Spider-Man? Was it A, Kane, who had regenerated and turned his jealousy towards his former quote-unquote brother, and because he had Peter's memories, he he knew how to make web, web, uh, web fluid? Was it B, the chameleon, who way back in his first appearance in 1962's Amazing Spider-Man number one, demonstrated that he was able to make a passable imitation of Spidey's web? 
was at C, Scarlet Spider 2099, an evil clone of future Spider-Man Miguel O'Hara, who was loose in the past after having stolen a pair of Spider-Man's web shooters from a museum in 2099. Or D, the Trapster, alias Fantastic Four villain Paste Pot Pete, whose sticky paste was close enough to Spider-Man's web fluid to fool the cops. I am going to, based on something you maybe alluded to earlier, I'm going to go with Kane. It actually was Paste Pot Pete. Oh. <laughs> Kane does come back. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it ended up being Paste Pot Pete. That was a... I assume that was an intentional intentional <laughs> misdirect planted earlier. Okay, so the Jackal, in my humble opinion, is maybe one of the goofiest villains Spider-Man has fought, or at least fought multiple times. It's a hot take, but... <laughs> but he still comes up short in comparison to Clifford F. Michaels. Michaels was raised by a millionaire who thought society's morals had completely declined compared to the early 1900s, raising young Clifford to think the same. When Clifford grew up, he became a villain who tried to impose the values of the early 20th century on the public. So he dressed in a straw boater hat, wore a striped green jacket, sported a handlebar mustache, and called himself Turner D. Century. Which of the following was not one of Turner D. Century's villainous accessories <laughs> one the horn of time advice to kill everyone under 65 with ultras with ultrasonic waves two a flamethrower umbrella three a laser shooting monocle or four a flying bicycle built for two <laughs> um i i okay i think i got this i almost want to say it's the flaming umbrella because that seems like a penguin thing but I my if I'm going to be rational about this I don't think that he had a flying bicycle built for two because who would ride with Turner D Century on the bicycle so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, with D the flying bicycle it was actually the laser shooting monocle ah. uh, he did have a flying bicycle <laughs> built for two did he have a did he have a, a co-writer uh I would have to do more research <laughs> and get back to you on that. I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't put you through that. Uh, question. So, question two for you is that, um, as I mentioned, Aunt May actually supposedly died, sort of in the early stages of the Clone Saga, in a famously touching story in Amazing Spider-Man number four hundred. Uh, but a later Spider-Man creative team of Howard Mackey and John Byrne wanted to bring Aunt May back and did so in a less than satisfying way, suggesting that the that Aunt May was alive all the time and had been replaced by an imposter. Who was the imposter revealed to be? Was the uh, was it A, a clone of Aunt May that Jackal had engineered with a heart defect who died thinking she was the real Aunt May all along? B, an actress Norman Osborn genetically modified to impersonate Aunt May who died thinking she was playing her greatest role ever? See an Aunt May from a parallel multiverse reality brought to the main 616 universe by Scryer, who died from the shock of revealing that, uh, finding out that Spider-Man was her nephew. Or D, the chameleon again, who discovered that he was dying and wanted to tear another parental figure from Spider-Man before he died by impersonating her. So usually I find all of these, these possibilities like delightful and wacky, but... <laughs> 
these just make me mad each one of them <laughs> we're taking this classic character and making it so that any of these sound like possible answers um i'm gonna go with norman osborne yes that was okay. sort of the the apex of the norman osborne story is that they sort of revamped spider-man with like a new number one in 99 and that was just sort of one of their things is bring back at me mm-hmm. in, in whatever terrible and contrived <laughs> way you have to do it. Okay. And moving along to the X-Men comics, the villain, Mr. Sinister created a clone of the X-Man gene gray. This clone named Madeline Pryor had Gray's psychic abilities and later went on to be a villainous sorceress named the goblin queen. Later, she joined the villainous elite secret society, the Hellfire Club. What did Pryor do to earn admission to the Hellfire Club? A. Steal the coffin containing the body of the Japanese assassin once inhabited by the X-Man, Psylocke, reviving the body, re-implanting the consciousness of Psylocke into the body, and then brainwashing her to be the Hellfire Club's assassin. B. Defeat the Red Rook of the Hellfire Club by psychically removing Mount Joy, a mutant that can possess bodies and comes from the same alternate future as time-traveling X-Man Bishop from the Red Rook's body. C. Infecting the supervillain clone of her son, Nathan, who had been taken into the future to find a cure for a techno-organic virus with a powerful sentient bacteria called Archaea. Or four temporarily mind wipe Mr. Sinister and make him the Hellfire Club's butler. <laughs> I wish that one were the case. I again yeah, like like you said, these all make me angry and, <laughs> and confused. I'm gonna say that it was what was the first one again? The first one was Steel Psylocke's body. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that one because I remember that sort of happened you i will say you are incorrect but that storyline did happen <laughs> and involved madeline Pryor. uh that was for her sisterhood of mutants uh team it was actually b she defeated the red rook of the hellfire club by removing a mutant parasite that comes from the x-man bishop's future timeline wow yeah. Also, the powerful sentient bacteria called Archaea was another real thing that happened in, to a different character on her supervillain team. Damn you, X-Men. Well, if you are not planning on checking out Maximum Clonage, we do have some alternatives for you. Uh, I will, I'll start off with a Spider-Man recommendation, and that is 1990's Revenge of the Sinister Six with pencils by Eric Larson and story and story by David Michelini. Michelini. And this was originally published in Spider-Man number 18 to 1990, and you can also find it in a collected edition as the Amazing Spider-Man epic collection under the title Revenge of the Sinister Six. And so if you don't want 
convoluted, crazy, pointlessly dark and confusing 90s Spider-Man, but you do want a 1990s Spider-Man that has really fun fight scenes, dynamic art, a ton of classic Spider-Man villains, and team-ups with the Hulk and Deathlock, you might want to check this out. Uh, I will say on a personal note, back in back in the day, this holds a special place in my heart because uh, before I was going to comic shops or subscribing, I would get my comics mostly from a local drug store or like a convenience store. And because of this, you could, there was always a good chance you were going to miss out on an issue of a storyline because they sell out or, you know, you just half bought a GI Joe guy or something and couldn't, mom and dad couldn't swing for a comic. So this is one of the first storylines that I actually remember I had all the issues to and kind of got on a month to month basis. But putting aside that nostalgia, it's not a deep story. It's basically pretty much all fight scenes from start to finish. Uh, although it does have some nice kind of relatively grounded marital scenes with Mary Jane and Peter Parker, where we learn about Peter's musical tastes, as I think we covered in a previous Canon Fodder. Um, but like I said, it's, it's really uh, a lot of fun. Dr. Octopus is back. He's reuniting the Sinister Six to take down Spidey. That's about all you need to know, except that Dr. Octopus is now sporting freaking adamantium tentacles. <laughs> so I think you can do with that information what you will. Um, so yeah, I would recommend it as a, as a solid alternative. My recommendation is a very unusual one-shot comic called 101 Ways to End the Clone Saga published in January 1997, uh, immediately after the return of the Green Goblin storyline that restored Peter Parker to the role of the one true Spider-Man. It's a book that humorously dramatizes the Marvel editors trying to come up with the ultimate ending to the storyline as they argue with one another and take ideas from writers. The title is an exaggeration, but the book does briefly play out a bunch of possible alternative end endings to the Clone Saga, each of which was based on a real one that actually was proposed by someone at Marvel. There are some pretty funny gags if you were following this stuff like I was at the time. Um, in one proposed scenario, a Peter Parker wakes up after an explosion with amnesia, unsure whether he's Peter Parker or Ben Riley. He says, The last thing I remember? There was a big battle at the docks. Must have been Kane. That's the only guy I've been fighting for months now. So, uh, at first glance, it might seem a little self-indulgent for the editors to write kind of a wacky workplace comedy about themselves, but it is pretty cool that Marvel is willing to poke fun of itself as sort of a mea culpa, after dragging fans along in the storyline for two years. Also, it's very funny in retrospect that one scenario involves the whole thing being a play for Mephisto to gain Spider-Man's soul, and all the editors sort of agree that Mephisto doesn't really have any place whatsoever in a Spider-Man story. Anyway, one of the weirder Spider-Man comics uh, Marvel has ever put out, and a cool curio for clone fanatics. Well, that will do it all for this episode of Indefensible Inc. If you like the podcast, subscribe on your podcasting app of choice. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @indefensibleinc and on Facebook. Email us at indefensibleinc at gmail.com if there's something you think we should be reviewing or if you want to give us feedback or yell at us for wasting like two hours of your time talking about talking about spider side. But uh, until next time, I have been Justin Zyduck. And I've been Ryan McClure. And if somebody asks you to help out with their scheme of genetic purity and superiority, Give it a give it a miss. Bye.